1. Across China on foot by Edwin John Dingle to travel in China is easy. To walk across China, over roads acknowledgedly worse than are met with in any civilized country in the two hemispheres, and having accommodation unequaled for crudeness and insanitation, is not easy. In deciding to travel in China, I determined to cross over land from the head of the Yangtze Gorges to British Burma on foot, and, although the strain nearly cost me my life, no conveyance was used in any part of my journey other than at two points described in the course of the narrative. For several days during my travels I lay at the point of death. The arduousness of constant mountaineering for such is ordinary travel in most parts of western China laid the foundation of a long illness, rendering it impossible for me to continue my walking, and as a consequence I resided in the interior of China during a period of convalescence of several months' duration, at the end of which I continued my cross-country tramp. Subsequently I returned into a Yuan man from Burma lived again in Tongshuanfu and Tongfu, and traveled in the wilds of the surrounding country. Whilst traveling I lived on Chinese food, and in the Miao country, where rice could not be got, subsisted for many days on maize only. My sole object in going to China was a personal desire to see China from the inside. My trip was undertaken for no other purpose. I carried no instruments with the exception of an aneroid and did not even make a single survey of the untrodden country through which I occasionally passed. So far as I know, I am the only traveler, apart from members of the missionary community, who has ever resided far away in the interior of the Celestial Empire for so long a time. Most of the manuscript for this book was written as I went along a good deal of it actually by the roadside in rural China. When my journey was completed, the following news paragraph in the North China Daily News of Shanghai was brought to my notice. All the legations at Peking have received anonymous letters from alleged revolutionaries in Shanghai, containing the warning that an extensive anti-dynastic uprising is imminent. If they do not assist the Manchus, foreigners will not be harmed, otherwise, they will be destroyed in a general massacre. The missives were delivered mysteriously, bearing obliterated postmarks. In view of the recent similar warnings received by the consuls, an easiness has been created. The above appeared in the journal quoted on June 3, 1910. The reader, in perusing my previously written remarks on the spirit of reform and how far it has penetrated into the innermost corners of the empire, should bear this paragraph in mind, for there is more boxerism and unrest in China than we know of. My account of the Hankow riots of January, 1911, through which I myself went, will, with my experience of rebellions in Yunnan, justify my assertion. I should like to thank all those missionaries who entertained me as I proceeded through China, especially Mr. John Graham and Mr. C. A. Fleischmann, of the China Inland Mission, who transacted a good deal of business for me and took all trouble uncomplainingly. I am also indebted to Dr. Clark, of Taylaifu, and to the Revs. H. Parsons and S. Pollard, for several photographs illustrating that section of this book dealing with the tribes of Yunnan, I wish to express my acknowledgments to several well-known writers on Far Eastern topics, notably to Drive G. E. Morrison, of Peking, the Ref. Sidney L. Hulick, M.A.D.D. and Mr. H. P. Morse, whose works are quoted. Much information was also gleaned from other sources. My thanks are due also to Mr. W. Braden Slater and to my brother, Mr. W. R. Dingle for their kindness in having negotiated with my publishers in my absence in inland China, and to the latter, for unfailing courtesy and patience, I am under considerable obligation, 
across China on foot, would have appeared in the autumn of 1910 had the printer's proofs, which were several times sent to me to different addresses in China, but which dodged me repeatedly, come sooner to hand. Signature, Edwin Dingle H.A.N.K.O.W. H.U.P.H. China. Across China on foot from the Straits to Shanghai Introductory The Scheme. Why I am walking across interior China. Leaving Singapore. Ignorance of life and travel in China. The China for the Chinese, cried. The new China and the determination of the government. The voice of the people. The province of Yuanman and the forward movement. A prophecy. Impressions of Saigon. Comparison of French and English methods. At Hong Kong. Cold sail up the Wang Pio. Disembarkation. Foreign population of Shanghai. Congestion in the city. Wonderful Shanghai. Through China from end to end. From Shanghai. 1.500 miles by river and 1.600 miles walking over land. From the greatest port of the Chinese Empire to the frontier of British Burma. That is my scheme. I am a journalist. One of the army of the hard worked who go down early to the valley. I state this because I would that the truth be told, for whilst engaged in the project with which this book has mainly to deal I was subjected to peculiar designations, such as, explorer, and other newspaper extravagances, and it were well, perhaps, for my reader to know once for all that the writer is merely a newspaper man, at the time on holiday, the rather extreme idea of walking across this flowery land came to me early in the year 1909. Although for many years I had cherished the hope of seeing interior China ere modernity had robbed her and her wonderful people of their isolation and antediluvianism, and ever since childhood my interest in China has always been considerable. A little prior to the Chinese New Year, a friend of mine dined with me at my rooms in Singapore, in the Straits Settlements, and the conversation about China resulted in our decision then and there to travel through the empire on holiday because at the time he had little else to do, the author, because he thought that a few months' travel in mid-China would, from a journalistic standpoint, be passed profitably, the intention being to arrive home in dear old England late in the summer of the same year. We agreed to cross China on foot, and accordingly on February 22, 1909, just as the sun was sinking over the beautiful harbor of Singapore that most valuable strategic gate of the Far East, where Crown Colonial Administration, however, is allowed by a lethargic British government to become more and more bungled every year we settled down on board the French mail steamer Nira, bound for Shanghai, my friends, good fellows, in reluctantly speeding me on my way, prophesied that this would prove to be my last long voyage to a last long rest, that the Chinese would never allow me to come out of China alive. Such is the ignorance of the average man concerning the conditions of life and travel in the interior of this land of night. Here, then, was I on my way to that land towards which all the world was straining its eyes, whose nation, above all nations of the earth, was altering for better things, and coming out of its historic shell. Reform, 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 was the echo, and I myself was on the way to hear it. At the time I started for China the cry of China for the Chinese was heard in all countries, among all peoples. Statesmen were startled by it. Editors wrote the phrase to death. Magazines were filled with copy good, bad and indifferent mostly written, be it said, by men whose knowledge of the question was by no means complete. Editorial opinion, and contradiction of that opinion, were printed side by side in journals having a good name to one who endeavored actually to understand what was being done, 
and whither are these broad tendencies and strange cravings of the Chinese word are leading a people who formerly were so indifferent to progress, it seemed essential that he should go to the country, and there on the spot make a study of the problem, was the reform, if genuine at all, universal in China, did it reach to the ends of the empire, that a new China had come into being, and was working astounding results in the enlightened provinces above the Yangtze and those connected with the capital by railway, was common knowledge, but one found it hard to believe that the west and the southwest of the empire were moved by the same spirit of Europeanism, and it will be seen that China in the west moves, if at all, but at a snail's pace, the second part of this volume deals with that portion of the subject, and it may be that the new China, as we know it in the more forward spheres of activity, will only take her proper place in the family of nations after fresh upheavals. Rivers of blood may yet have to flow as a sickening libation to the gods who have guided the nation for forty centuries before she will be able to attain her ambition of standing line to line with the other powers of the eastern and western worlds. But it seems that no matter what the cost, no matter what she may have to suffer financially and nationally, no matter how great the obstinacy of the people towards the reform movement, the change is coming, has already come with alarming rapidity, and has come to stay. China is changing let so much be granted, and although the movement may be hampered by a thousand general difficulties, presented by the ancient civilization of a people whose customs and manners and ideas have stood the test of time since the days contemporary with those of Solomon, and at one time bade fair to test eternity, the government cry of China for the Chinese is going to win. Chinese civilization has for ages been allowed to get into a very bad state of repair and official corruption and deceit have prevented the government from making an effectual move towards present-day aims, but that she is now making an honest endeavor to rectify her faults in the face of tremendous odds must, so it appears to the writer, be apparent to all beholders, that is the government viewpoint, it is important to note this, in China, however, the government is not the people, it never has been. It is not to be expected that great political and social reforms can be introduced into such an enormous country as China, and among her 430 millions of people, merely by the issue of a few imperial edicts. The masses have to be convinced that any given thing is for the public good before they accept, despite the proclamations, and in thus convincing her own people China has yet to go through the fire of a terrible ordeal. Especially will this be seen in the second part of this volume where in you and man there are huge areas absolutely untouched by the forward movement, and where the people are living the same life of disease, distress and dirt, of official, social, and moral degradation as they lived when the Westerner remained still in the primeval forest stage. But despite the skepticism and the cynicism of certain writers, whose pessimism is due to a lack of foresight, and despite the fact that she is being constantly accused of having in the past ignominiously failed at the crucial moment in endeavors towards minor reforms, I am one of those who believe that in China we shall see arising a government whose power will be paramount in the East, and upon the integrity of whose people will depend the peace of Europe, it is much to say, we shall not see it, but our children will, the government is going to conquer the people, she has done so already in certain provinces, and in a few years the reform deep and real, not the make-believe we see in many parts of the empire today will be universal. Between Singapore and Shanghai the opportunity occurred of calling at Saigon and Hong Kong, two cities offering instructive contrasts of French and British administration in the Far East. Saigon is not troubled much by the Britisher, 
the nationally exacting Frenchman has brought it to represent fairly his love Paris in the east. The approach to the city, through the dirty brown mud of the treacherous Meccan, which is swept down vigorously to the China Sea between stretches of monotonous mangrove, with no habitation of man anywhere visible, is distinctly unpicturesque, but Saigon itself, apart from the exorbitance of the charges especially so to the spendthrift Englishman, is word of the dreary journey of numberless twists and quick turns of river, and owing to the most patient pilot, in the daytime, Saigon is as hot as that last born whither all evildoers wander Englishmen and dogs alone are seen abroad between nine and one, but in the soothing cool of the soft tropical evening, Gaylet Boulevards, a magnificent state-subsidized opera house, alfresco cafes where dawdle the domino-playing absinthe drinkers, the fierce-moustached gendarmes, and innumerable features typically and picturesquely French, induced me easily to believe myself back in the bewildering wordle of the Boulevard de Capucins or de Italiens, whether the narrow streets of the native city are clean or dirty whether garbage heaps lie festering in the broiling Sunday sending their disgusting effluvia out to annoy the sense of smell at every turn. The municipality cares not a little bit. Indifference to the well-being of the native pervades it, there is present no progressive prosperity. Every second person I met was, or seemed to be, a government official. He was dressed in immaculate white clothes of the typical ugly French cut, trimmed elaborately with an libidum decoration of gold braid and brass buttons. All was so different from Singapore and Hong Kong, and one did not feel, in surroundings which made strongly for the laissez-faire of the Frenchman in the East, ashamed of the fact that he was an Englishman. Three days north lies Hong Kong, an all-important link in the armed chain of Britain's empire east of Suez, bone of the bone and flesh of the flesh of Great Britain beyond the seas. The history of this island, ceded to us in 1842 by the Treaty of Nanking, is known to everyone in Europe or should be, four and a half days more, and we anchored at Wusung, and a few hours later, after a terribly cold run up the river in the teeth of a terrific wind, we arrived at Shanghai, the average man in Europe and America does not know that this great metropolis of the Far East is far removed from salt water, and that it is the first point on entering the Yangtze Kang at which a port could be established, it is twelve miles up the Wangpilo. Junks whirled past with curious tattered brown sails, resembling dilapidated veranda blinds. Merchantmen were there flying the flags of the nations of the world, all churning up the yellow stream as they hurried to catch the flood tide at the bar. Then came the din of disembarkation. Enthusiastic hotel runners, hard-worked coolies, rickshaw men, professional Chinese beggars, and the inevitable hangers-on of a large eastern city crowded around me to turn an honest or dishonest penny. Some rude, rough you loud, covered with grease and coal dust, pushed bang against me and hurled me without ceremony from his path. My baggage, meantime, was thrown onto a two-wheeled van, drawn by four of those poor human beasts of burden how horrible to have been born a Chinese coolie, and I was whirled away to my hotel for Tucker. The French mail had given us coffee and rolls at six. But the excitement of landing at a foreign port does not usually produce the net amount of satisfaction to or make for the sustenance of the inner man of the phlegmatic Englishman, as with the wilder-natured Frenchman. Therefore were our spirits ruffled. However, my companion and I fed later. Subsequently to this we agreed not to be drawn to the clubs or mix in the social life of Shanghai, but to consider ourselves as two beings entirely apart from the 16,023 Britishers, Americans. Frenchmen, Germans, Russians, 
Danes, Portuguese, and other sundry internationals at that moment at Shanghai. They lived there, we were soon to leave. The city was suffering from the abnormal congestion common to the Orient, with a big dash of the West. Trams, motors, rickshaws, the peculiar Chinese wheelbarrow, horrid public shaky landas in miniature, conveyances of all kinds, and the swarming masses of coolie humanity carrying or hauling merchandise amid incessant jabbering, yelling, and vociferating, made intense bewilderment before breakfast. Wonderful Shanghai. First journey from Shanghai up the lower Yangtze to ICHANG chapter right to Ichang, an everyday trip. Start from Shanghai, and the city's appearance, at Hankow, meaning of the name, trio of strategic and military points of the empire, Hanyang and Wuchang, commercial and industrial future of Hankow, getting our passports, Britishers in the city, the commercial Chinaman, the native city, some impressions, clothing of the people, cotton and wool, indifference to comfort, surprise at our daring project, at Ichang, British gunboat and early morning routine, our vain quest for aid, laying in stores and commissioning our boat, ceremonies at starting gorgeous trip, raising anchor, and our departure, let no one who has been so far as Ichang, a thousand miles from the sea, imagine that he has been into the interior of China, it is quite an everyday trip, modern steamers, with every modern convenience and luxury, probably as comfortable as any river steamers in the world, ply regularly in their two services between Shanghai and this port, at the foot of the gorges, the Wangpio looked like the Thames, and the Shanghai Bund like the embankment, when I embarked on board a jack boat en route for Hankow, and thence to each on by a smaller steamer, on a dark, pepperly cold Saturday night, March 6, 1909, I was to travel 1500 miles up that greatest artery of China. The Yangtze surpasses in importance to the Celestial Empire what the Mississippi is to America, and yet even in China there are thousands of resident foreigners who know no more about this great river than the average Smithfield butcher. Ask ten men in Fleet Street or in Wall Street where each on island and nine will be unable to tell you, yet it is a port of great importance, when one considers that the handling of China's vast river-borne trade has been open to foreign trade and residence since the Chefu Convention was signed in 1876, that Ichang is a city of 40,000 souls, and has a gross total of imports of nearly 40 millions of tails, of Hankow, however, more is known, here we landed after a four days run, and, going to the low water, had to wait five days before the shallower bottom steamer for the higher journey had come in, the city is made up of foreign concessions, as in other treaty ports, but away in the native quarter there is the real China, with her selfish rush, her squalidness and filth among the teeming thousands, there dwell together, literally side by side, but yet eternally apart, all the conflicting elements of the East and West which go to make up a city in the Far East, and particularly the China coast, Hankou means literally Han Mouth being situated at the juncture of the Han River and the Yangtze, across the way. As I write, I can see Han Yang, with its iron works belching out black curls of smoke, where the arsenal turns out 100 Mauser rifles daily. This is but a fraction of the total work done. It is, I believe, the only steel rolling mill in China. Long before the foreigner set foot so far up the Yangtze, Hankou was a city of great importance the Chinese used to call it the center of the world. 
Ten years ago I should have been 30 days hard travel from Peking, at the present moment I might pack my bag and be in Peking within 36 hours. Hank out, with Tianxin and Ninkin, makes up the trio of principal strategic points of the empire. The trio of centers also of greatest military activity. On the opposite bank of the river I can see Wuchang, the provincial capital, the seat of the viceroyalty of two of the most turbulent and important provinces of the whole 18. Hank out. Hanyang, and Wuchang have a population of something like 2 million people, and it is safe to prophesy that no other center in the whole world has a greater commercial and industrial future than Hankou. Here we registered as British subjects, and secured our Chinese passports, resembling naval ensigns more than anything else, for the four provinces of Hupei, Quechau, Sichuan, and Yunnan. The Consul General and his assistants helped us in many ways disillusioning us of the many distorted reports which have got into print regarding the indifference shown to British travelers by their own consuls at these ports. We found the brethren at the Hankow Club a happy band, with every luxury around them for which hand and heart could wish, so that it were perhaps ludicrous to look upon them as exiles, men out in the outposts of Britain beyond the seas, building up the trade of the empire, yet such they undoubtedly were, most of them having a much better time than they would at home. There is not the roughing required in Hankow which is necessary in other parts of the empire, as in British East Africa and in the jungles of the Federated Malay States. For instance, building the empire where there is an abundance of the straw wherewith to make the bricks, is a matter of no difficulty, and then the Chinese is a good man to manage in trade, and in business dealings his word is his bond, generally speaking. Although we do not forget that not long ago a branch in North China of the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank was swindled seriously by a shroff who had done honest duty for a great number of years, it cannot, however, be said that such behavior is a common thing among the commercial class. My personal experience has been that John does what he says he will do, and for years he will go on doing that one thing, but it should not surprise you if one fine morning, with the infinite sagacity of his race. He ceases to do this when you are least expecting it and he does you. Keep an eye on him. And the Chinese to be found in Hankow having dealings with Europeans in business is as good as the best of men. We wended our way one morning into the native city, and agreed that few inconveniences of the celestial empire make upon the western mind a more speedy impression than the entire absence of sanitation. In Hankow we were in mental suspense as to which was the filthier native city Hankow or Shanghai. But we are probably like other travelers, who find each city visited worse than the last. Should there arise in their midst a man anxious to confer an everlasting blessing upon his fellow Chinese, no better work could he do than to institute a system approaching what to our western mind is sanitation. We arrived, of course, in the winter, and, having seen it at a time when the sun could do but little in increasing the stenches, we leave to the imagination what it would be in the summer in a city which for heat is not excelled by Aden, a during the summer of 1908 no less than 28 foreigners succumbed to cholera, and the native deaths were numberless, the people were suffering very much from the cold, and it struck me as one of the unaccountable phenomena of their civilization that in their ingenuity in using the gifts of nature they have never learned it to weave wool, and to employ it in clothing that island in a general sense, there are a few exceptions in the empire. The nation is almost entirely dependent upon cotton for clothing, which in winter is padded with a cheap wadding to an abnormal thickness. The common people wear no underclothing whatever. When they sleep they strip to the skin, 
and wrap themselves in a single wadded blanket, sleeping the sleep of the tired people their excessive labor makes them, and, although their clothes might be the height of discomfort, they show their famous indifference to comfort by never complaining, these burdensome clothes hang around them like so many bags, with the wide gaps here and there where the wine whistles to the flesh, it is a national characteristic that they are immune to personal inconveniences, a philosophy which I found to be universal, from the highest to the lowest, everybody we met, from the British Consul General downward, was surprised to know that my companion and I had no knowledge of the Chinese language, and seemed to look lightly upon our chances of ever getting through, it was true, neither my companion nor myself knew three words of the language, but went forward simply believing in the good faith of the Chinese people, with our passports alone to protect us, that we should encounter difficulties innumerable, that we should be called upon to put up with the greatest hardships of life, when viewed from the standard to which one had been accustomed, and that we should be put to great physical endurance, we could not doubt, but we believed in the Chinese, and believed that should any evil befall us it would be the outcome of our own lack of forbearance, or of our own direct seeking, we knew that to the Chinese we should at once be, for in devils, and, barbarians, that if not holding us actually in contempt, they would feel some condescension in dealing and mixing with us, but I was personally of the opinion that it was easier for us to walk through China than it would be for two Chinese, dressed as Chinese, to walk through Great Britain or America. What would the canny Highlander or the rural English rustic think of two pigtailed men tramping through his countryside? We entered at Ichang at 7.30 a.m. on March 19th. I fell up against a boatman who offered to take us ashore, an uglier fellow I had never seen in the east. The morning sunshine soon dried the decks of the gunboat Kinshad and stationed in the river for the defense of the port which English jacktars were swabbing in a half-hearted sort of way, and all looked rosy enough, be but for the author, who with his companion was a literal babe in the wood. The day was most eventful and trying to one's personal serenity. We had asked questions of all and sundry respecting our proposed tramp and the way we should get to work in making preparations. Each individual person seemed vigorously to do his best to induce us to turn back and follow callings of respectable members of society. From Shanghai upwards we might have believed ourselves watched by a secret society, which had for its motto, Return, oh, wanderer, return. Hardly a person knew aught of the actual conditions of the interior of the country in which he lived and labored, and everyone tried to dissuade us from our project, coming ashore in good spirits. We called at the consulate, at the back of the city graveyard, and were smoking his cigars and giving his boy an examination in elementary English. When the consul came down, it was not possible, however, for us to get much more information than we had read up, and the consul suggested that the most likely person to be of use to us would be the missionary at the China Inland Mission. Thither we repaired, following a sturdy employee of Britain but we found that the CIM representative was not to be found despite our repairing, so off we trotted to the chief business house of the town, at the entrance to which we were met by a Chinese, who bowed gravely, asked whether we had eaten our rice, and told us, quietly but pointedly, that our passing up the rough stone steps would be of no use, as the manager was out, a few minutes later I stood reading the inscription on the gravestone near the church, whilst my brave companion, the other man, endeavored fruitlessly to pacify a fierce dog in the doorway of the Scottish Society's missionary premises but that missionary, too, was out. What, then, 
was the little game? Were all the foreigners resident in this town dodging us? Afraid of us or what? The latter, the glittering idiots, yelled the other man. He was infuriated. Two Englishmen with English tongues in their heads, and unable to direct their own movements. Preposterous. And then, making an observation which I will not print, he suggested mildly that we might fix up all matters ourselves. Within an hour an English-speaking, one-piece cook had secured the berth, which carried a salary of $25 per month. We were well on the way with the engaging of our boat for the gorgeous trip, and one by one our troubles vanished, laying in stores. However, was not the lightest of sundry perplexities. Curry and rice had been suggested as the staple diet for the river journey, and we ordered, with no thought to the contrary, a piccolo best rice, various brands of curries, which were raked from behind the shelves of a dingy little store in a back street, and presented to us at alarming prices enough to last a regiment of soldiers for pretty well the number of days we two were to travel, and, for luxuries, we laid in a few tin meats. All was practically settled, when the other man, settling his eyes dead upon me, yelled, Dingle, you've forgotten the milk, and then, after a moment, oh, well, we can surely do without milk, it's no use coming on a journey like this unless one can rough it a bit, and he ended up with a rude reference to the disgusting sticky condensed milk tins, and we wandered on, suddenly he stopped, did the other man, he looked at a small stone on the pavement for a long time, eventually cruelly blurting out, directly at me, as if it were all my misdoing, the sugar, the sugar, we must have sugar, man, I said nothing, with the exception of a slight remark that we might do without sugar, as we were to do without milk, there was a pause, then, raising his stick in the air, the other man proorted, now, I have no wish to quarrel, and he put his nose nearer to mine, you know that, of course, but to think we can do without sugar is quite unreasonable, and I had no idea you were such a cantankerous man, we have sugar, or I go back, we had sugar, it was brought on board in upwards of twenty small packets of that detestable thin Chinese paper, and the other man, with commendable meekness, withdrew several pleasantries he had unwittingly dropped and had deficiencies in my upbringing, fifty pounds of this sugar were ordered, and sugar that dirty, Brown sticky stuff got into everything on board my fingers are sticky even as I write and no less than exactly one half went down to the bottom of the Yangtze. Travelers by houseboat on the upper Yangtze should have some knowledge of commissariat. Getting away was a tedious business. Later, the fellows pressed us to spend a good deal of time in the small, dingy, ill-lighted apartment they are pleased to call their club, and the skipper had to recommissite on his boat, get in provisions for the voyage, engage his crew pay off debts, and attend to a thousand and one minute details all to be done after the contract to carry the madcap.